This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. The Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xE plug-in hybrid is built for the best of both worlds. For the city buzz, for the call of the wild, for finding solitude, for sharing memories, for day trips, and for far-roaming adventures. Because with gas and electric capability... The Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xE inspires you to explore more, to explore it all. Tap the banner to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. Hello and welcome to John Richardson and the Future Notes Series 4, Episode 9, being recorded before the release of Series 4, Episode 8. And I tell you what, that's caused some tension online. <laughs> Don't do an episode for 15 years and then record two at once. That's freaked people out. But here we are, ready to answer questions. By we, I mean, of course, myself, the clueless John Richardson, and the clue-full Ed Gillespie. Hello. And Mark Stevenson. Hello. I know for a fact that, Mark, you've just done exercise. Can you tell from my voice? I can, yeah. I can feel it. That buzz was the smell coming through the microphone. There's a fine sheen of perspiration on your brow. Yeah. It does make you feel good, exercise. Yeah. We'll get on to that because we have a listener question about exercise. Ed, how have you been? I was up at half three this morning. Um Running? <laughs> no, not running. Well, I was actually just running through to my daughter's room because I just built her a new bunk bed and then I made a little shelf on the side of it so she could still have like her little clock and her sippy cup next to her. And I heard like half three, this dada, dada. And so I go through and she goes, I've dropped my cup on the floor. <laughs> so I picked it up and put it down. I said, You could have got that yourself. And then it went back to bed slightly grumpy. They do that because they kind of go, Oh, but I'm really comfy in this bed. And- yeah. <laughs> and usually when I ask a parent to do things, they do things, and they don't really think that it's the middle of the night. No. Well, deeper than that, I think they get an understanding of when they get to an age, because they hear us talking at dinners about, oh, don't they grow up fast and all that, and oh, they'll get to an age where they don't want you anymore. I think they get to an age, and it is about an age where we've all got kids, where they realise they want to come in, and they want to have me in their bed, and they know that the <laughs> clock is ticking until I'm off to university and I don't ring them for four months. Yeah. Uh, my daughter's certainly worked out. You like this, so don't pretend you don't. If I have a nightmare and I come in your bed, you absolutely fucking love it. <laughs> you like the cuddles, and you like being needed, and she's bang on. Johnny, if I have a nightmare and come in your bed, would you like that? <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely not. not. Your new ripped physique. <laughs> so, should we start with exercise, since you're sat there perspiring, and a question that came in on Twitter... Did you exercise because you knew this question was coming up? Or are you one of those who does it anyway? You're one of that lot? Well, I've been getting back into it. I had two or three months of not really doing it because of Christmas and various crises and setting up the business and all that kind of stuff. And I'm getting back into doing it daily now. So, uh, yeah, I'm the sort of person who just does it anyway. And I'm the sort of person who schedules it in and works out when today am I going to do my workout and that kind of thing. 
Alistair Humphrey says, perhaps this may just be an opportunity for Mark to do more humble bragging. <laughs> but what exercise regimes do you recommend to help ease the burden on the NHS caused by an unfit population? And it's a fair question. We've talked a lot about sick care versus health care and how the best thing we can all do and all that. We haven't laid our own cards on the table. So uh, let's have a discussion about what workouts we do. And specific to Alistair's question, what are the best ones? to ensure, I guess, long-term health and reduce the burden on the NHS. Do you want to go first? Sexy Mark, just been out for a run with Enya, have you? <laughs> Enya must be about 80 by now, I don't No, I think you'll find she's probably a similar age to us. Oh, uh, really? <laughs> I'm going to defer to Mark on this one because my exercise is like a brisk walk along the river. To the pub? <laughs> no, to see the otters usually. So it's like, don't chase otters. And do it with a bit of energy and a spring in your step. Yeah. First thing I would say is there is no one thing. And I think when people get stuck with exercise, you know, what's the one thing I can do? What's any kind of exercise is amazing. And I remember reading an article that said that if that, if exercise didn't exist, a sort of thought experiment, and somebody discovered it and went to every healthcare system in the world and went, do you know what? If people did this for like 20, 30 minutes a day, it's more powerful than any drug ever invented in history. It will reduce cancer rates by this much. It would be the most effective drug ever created. It would be considered literally miraculous. So the best advice I've got with exercise is do the exercise that you will do. Because actually, if you're forced to do something, you don't really like doing it. You won't do it. At the end of the day, especially if you've got kids, I just don't want to do it. So I like playing badminton. So tonight I'm playing badminton for two hours. I get to run around, do a massive cardiovascular workout. I burn about 500 calories and I don't notice. I also like weight training because my work is quite cerebral and lifting heavy things and listening to heavy metal music gives me brain arrest as well, which I quite like the mindlessness of it. Now, lots of people rightly hate weight training, so don't do it. Find the thing that you would do anyway and then do it. And then what you'll find is as you do it more, you find yourself wanting to do other things a bit more because the fitter you get, the better you feel, the better you feel, the more you want to do. So there is no right thing. I mean, Joe Wicks has kind of done the whole HIT training thing, which is actually pretty good. If you want like a balanced exercise workout, then HIT training is pretty good. But if you hate HIT training, don't do it. Find a thing that you will do. And it might be going for a walk. It might be setting yourself a stupid target of going, right, I'm going to work out how to do five chin-ups or five pull-ups. But yeah, do the exercise that you will do. And that is the best thing. And hang out with people who want to exercise too. If you want to build a culture of exercise, hang out with people who are healthy. Yeah, so you don't listen to prog when you're weight training. You listen to heavy metal trouble with prog is if you're lifting something heavy the time signatures can really fuck you up and you could end up with a, with a serious injury <laughs> tantric weight training <laughs> there's a lot to be said for making yourself do it isn't there because i must admit since we had our daughter i sometimes you see parents out with prams and they're all in neat clothes and they're clean and you think oh god they've got their shit together it's really <laughs> annoying and you think oh maybe they have today but actually they probably won't have tomorrow and actually, they've just prioritised getting dressed and looking good, whereas I haven't. And I do that thing with exercise where I'll see someone out for a run and I think, oh, God, I wish I had the time to do that. But, you know, sadly, I've got to look after my daughter and I've got work to do and I've got the house to look after. And I think, well, they've probably got all that shit as well. They've just prioritised the exercise above some of the other stuff. And I'm very bad at that. I'm very bad at saying... I have to do some exercise today, so it means I can't do one of these other things. And as a result, I haven't really exercised for the last six years. Yeah, but I'll tell you a trick, right? So most people think they're going to change their behavior and then become fit. So like my behavior will change who I am. And actually, most behavior change doesn't work that way. It has to go the other way around. So a really good question you can ask yourself, and I ask myself quite often, I don't always do it, I often fail, but it's just like, what would a healthy person do? 
So you don't think, oh God, you know, I'm going to make the right choice. So just when you're sat there choosing what you're going to have for lunch, you just go, what would a healthy person eat? Then you choose something that's a bit more that way, you know. I thought you usually asked yourself, what would Oliver Reed do? <laughs> Are we talking about John here? <laughs> yeah, <absolutely>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get a flight abroad and get leathered. And what, Ed, you'd be asking yourself, what would Swampy do? Is that right? I'm not sure about this new crusty persona you seem to be trying to foist upon me. <laughs> Just say it as I see it. That's all. Yeah, exactly. I've not started tunnelling yet. So, Ed, do you do any form of exercise beyond the occasional walk, joking aside? I do my Qigong. I mean, following on from like the sort of meditation practice of the day, I do a basic Qigong practice, which is called the Great Eight, which is just eight quite simple moves, which helps get me loose and limber. I mean, you know, when it's like lifting a child around, it's actually quite a workout, you yeah. know. And is that something you're aiming to change? Would you like to do more organised and scheduled measured exercise? I'm comfortable in my own skin in that respect. I do do a daily walk. And it is 45 minutes. It's not exactly intensive, hard-hitting cardio, but it does get the blood flowing and the lungs going. And also, it's the immersion in nature. Yes. The green connection, which is just as powerful. So I think if you can combine the two, my idea of hell is having been a, like a county-level rugby player in my youth and having spent a lot of time in the gym as a result. I hate gyms. I just I can't think of anything worse than being surrounded by other people grunting and sweating and everyone got their headphones in and they're all ignoring each other. And it seems to be miserable. I'd rather go for a walk in the open air any day. I agree. I hate the gym as well. I mean, some people really like it, which is fine. But the idea that you have to drive there or get there, get changed, work out, shower, get changed, get home. It's like, it takes bloody hours. And if you've got kids and stuff, you just haven't got the time. So I've got a pull-up bar and a set of adjustable dumbbells and a, and a bench at home. And the other thing about that is it means I can fit bits of a workout in between calls and meetings. I can just go and do 10 minutes exercise here, there, and everywhere. So you've just got to fit it in. He says all this. Actually, he just has a bunch of those electro pads that he just sticks on his body and switches on the switch and all his yeah. muscles just switch of their own accord. Yeah, that, those don't work. That was a real <laughs> fad for a while, wasn't it? The current yeah. fad... And I'm ashamed to say I'm part of it. So I had Lucy booked us blood tests before Christmas as a little romantic treat. And mine weren't good. And it was a wake-up call. And I have found I'm a sort of facts and figures and stats man. And I like to see it written down. Uh, so I've downloaded a sleep app and a fitness app. And it's tracking what I'm doing. And I feel that sense of achievement and seeing it logged somehow helps me believe there's been some gain because it's written down as pathetic as it is, but I am exercising more. And here's a little treat. I've downloaded a sleep app that records the noises you make while you're asleep. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to share them? I'm going to share one, yeah. So the first night I turned it on, you know that sensation when you've been asleep for about 10 minutes and you feel like you're falling and you wake yeah, up? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Had that, but not only that, when I came to, because I've been staying in a lot of hotels, I don't think when I wake up, I don't know where I am. I could be in... Blackpool or Plymouth doesn't make any difference. I didn't know where I was. And the lampshade in the bedroom, I was convinced it was uh, something hovering above me. So <laughs> I, I made a particular noise. So I'll play you the noise now. You can hear me sort of gasp awake and then a sort of two-tiered scream as I try and work out what's above me. So here we go. <laughs> 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 oh my god that's quite dramatic i said it to my mum because i said oh look this is a really funny noise i made and she said oh, it makes me want to burst into tears <laughs> <laughs> that really plucks at the heartstrings 
Yeah, I think that noise would have gone uncaptured, but for yeah. the technology. Yeah, we're all missing out on that one. I just think what noises I make. It's so exciting waking up in the morning, finding out what noises you've made, <laughs> unseen how you've slept. And it's making me go to bed earlier as well. Do you stick the thing in the bed with you? You put it on the bedside table. So how does it know if you're sleeping or not? Because I spend lots of night awake just lying there. It does seem fairly accurate. So last night I had a gig and you can put sleep notes on it so you can tell it if you've had a stressful day, if you've had caffeine, if you've drunk alcohol. Right. So last night it knew that I didn't go to sleep for an hour and a half after I got into bed. And that is bang on. And then it told me that I'd gone into a deep sleep quite late in the night and then woken up early. How does that work if you share a bed though? Now I'm not sure about that, but it does have a facility to identify who's snoring and separate it out by uh, person. <laughs> I was going to say, you could have a competing app to go, was that me making that noise last night or was that you? Sadly, in our house, it's always me. The snoring is disgusting. It's been a real wake-up call to... <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. I see what you've done there. Yeah, absolutely. Horrific. So, you mentioned, Ed, there, perhaps an exercise being a walk and benefiting from both the health benefits and the immersion in nature. And we've had a question on that topic. Scott Harrington says, Thank you for the content. I enjoy your discussions, but you have turned me into an eco-bore. How do you guys see the future of rewilding in the UK? Is there hope for reintroducing predators? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the short answer is yes. It's going to be tricky. I mean, you might have seen there was lots of news last week about the new sort of environment bill, which is trying to give everyone immediate access to nature, you know, with access to a green space within 15 minutes of of every household, Uh which I do think is really important. I mean, there is a huge problem because it's a lot of headline-grabbing stuff around those type of targets with very little funding or coordination underpinning them. But uh, in answer to Scott's question, yes, we are moving slowly in that direction. I mean, people have been releasing otters. I mean, funnily enough, the otters that are in my area came from an otter trust that was set up by a sort of pioneering local conservationist, I think in the 80s. Actually, that otter trust is no longer in operation as an otter trust because the wild population of otters has now recovered. I mean, it depends how big a predator Scott wants to get. Uh, I mean, you know, we've got Scottish wildcats. There are talks about bringing in wolves, certainly in Scotland, I think on one or two estates up there. And we know that there are these fantastic keystone species effects which can have all these cascade impacts, which really enhance the ecology. I mean, there's a famous study from Yellowstone National Park in the US where the reintroduction of wolves helped to control the deer population, which reduced the grazing of young trees, which re-established forests, which changed river catchment. And actually, top-end predators can have a really hugely beneficial effect. That said, if you speak to the local fishermen at the marina here, they all grumble like anything about the otters. And we actually had a seal in our river last week. Wow. wow. That swum up from the coast. There's quite a thriving seal population along the East Anglian coastline. And the seal had obviously gone, oh, I'm going to go for a bit of a sojourn upriver. And all the fishermen are complaining. But for me, it's just like, it says something profoundly brilliant about the health of the local ecosystem that we've got flourishing otters and a, and a seal wandering up to have a snack. Wow. Did that seal get you a little bit crazy? I uh, it's a kiss from a rose. That was so bad. bad. (laughs) It's left me flummoxed. (laughs) I mean, the the opposition comes whatever you bring in the recovery of big predators. So whether it's bears or wolves or those very large megafauna, you do get issues. I mean, you know, there's a big argument in Sweden, for example, about the sort of annual wolf hunts. 
by farmers who say that they're losing livestock to wolves. And there was a famous story as well from, I think it was an Italian conservation project, which reintroduced a brown bear in the Italian Alps. And the trouble was the bears did quite well. And then one of the bears wandered over the German border and a German hunter shot it. <laughs> it's like, so I'm not up for that. Let's bring back the world predators in order to shoot them. And it's driving me mad because it's, it's shooting season here. And there's nothing that could be further from hunting or like the supposed glories of hunting, which were highly questionable, than a bunch of well-fed blokes in tweed shooting at pheasants, which have been cultivated and bred for the specific purpose with a massive great cloud of buckshot, which means they can hardly ever bloody miss. It's a travesty. You can sort of see it in your kids and Elsie's constantly asking me about if we're going anywhere and talking about a different country, she will ask, do they have bears there? Do they have wolves there? The children are naturally so yeah. intrigued in the sort yeah. of plethora and variety of animal species that exist on the planet. And actually, the fact that we've whittled them down so much, we've got our nature to a point where even like sparrows and starlings are struggling to survive. Yeah. It would be thrilling to be able to say to Elsie, well, if we go up to Scotland, you might see a wolf or you might see a bear or something like that. Or if we stay here, you'll see otters. But it is part of a much wider conversation about, as you say, farmers then complaining that they've they've lost animals. That's part of a wider debate of, well, they weren't yours, actually. You can't own, I know you're the farmer and it's your land, but you cannot own an animal. And species will do what they do to survive. That's nature. And it just feels like we're not there yet, really. No, and it's also in the mythology, you know. I mean, I think one of the reasons that kids are so fascinated is because every fairy story you read is full of bears and wolves. Mm. And those big animals, which feel like a real integral part to the deep culture, but then are absent in the practical realities of day-to-day life. And so I think that's why kids are always hunting and searching and looking for that, because it's like, well, they're in the stories, Dad. You know, where are they now? I think the best book to read on, well, one of the best books to read on sort of how farming and the wild world interact or could is James Rebank's English Pastoral. It's just the most extraordinary book. It's a really brilliant read and it totally made me see it from every point of view, from the point of view of the farmer, why certain farmers went in certain directions, the food system, and also, but the natural world into which we sit. And I think he would probably argue that you need to have much more wildness to make your farm function better, but there is a certain amount of wildness that isn't useful in certain crops and whatever. So he just has this very, very balanced view. And he says, if we have that balanced view, we live sort of in concert with nature and we take our gifts, but we make sure we're replenishing them. That's actually long-term sustainable prosperity for all because i think it was william woodrow said you know or was it confucius i get those two confused quite often (laughs) (laughs) one's chinese just for clarity yeah william woodrow wasn't chinese was he no anyway somebody said man for all his pretensions only exists because of the fact that there's three inches of topsoil and that it rains i think that was monty darn actually (laughs) so that leads us to our next question a lovely email from jen from lancashire who says, hello, before the end of the season series episode, would you be able to recommend some of your own favourite podcasts? I tend to listen to a lot of right-wing podcasts so I can better understand the arguments on both sides. But it's very handy to have the future Thoughts podcast to calm me down after Braverman has gone on one of her nonsensical diatribes about those in the boats. I'm already growing concerned about your next hiatus. In the last break, I came dangerously close to popping down to Dover to throw rocks at migrants, <laughs> offering budgeting tips down at the local food bank and fracking the arse out of my own back garden. I live in Lancashire. I could be sat on millions. 
Any recommendations that you think might help restore the balance when you're on your next break would be much appreciated. Many thanks, Jen. I tell you what, I mean, I don't listen to many podcasts, but I think Jen should start her own because she sounds brilliant. (laughs) I really love Sam Conniff's Be More Pirate, which I think if you're looking for a sort of a future nought style naughtiness and looking and interviewing loads of people who are doing radical maverick clever things, then Be More Pirate is great. Yeah, I don't actually listen to any other podcasts. I haven't got time. I listen to football podcasts, but I don't think Jen wants that. And you do a football podcast, don't you? I do do a football podcast, yeah, but I don't listen to that either. No. <laughs> yeah. I tell you what, I sometimes listen to this one to review the edit. That doesn't work, though, does it? <laughs> I recommend you listen to the one you're already listening to. Listen to this one twice. Well, there's something to be said for that. Because I'm so busy, I don't really want to listen to too much thought when I've spent a lot of the time doing it. So I put on comedy, basically. I'll put on, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue or something like that. Yes, there is a lot to be said for escape. Or the news quiz. Anything with Andy Zaltzman in it will get me going. The other one I love is Outrage and Optimism, which is the Paul Dickinson, Tom Rivicano, Christiana Figueres. If you want to know the sort of ins and outs of what's happening in climate politics and policy and machinations, that's pretty essential listening. Yeah, no, that's great. There you go. Two recommendations there at least. And Gary says on the subject of podcast morning chaps, I think you're missing out on maximum exposure. Listening to the rest is politics. They've just launched another podcast. They have an app. They have a subscription service and they've gone on tour currently filling the London Palladium. I'm not quite sure what his question or his point is, other than you don't seem to be doing very well. Stare <laughs> <laughs> is like, you lazy bastards. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't know yeah. what to say. I mean, worth pointing out to Gary, we're not willfully hiding this podcast from anyone. <laughs> I don't know about that podcast. It sounds to me that a lot of people are doing that full time, whereas we do this in between doing everything else. I mean, you are literally on tour at the moment, John. Yes. Ed is removing logs from sluices all over Norfolk. And I hear you set up a business. You've never mentioned it, but is that true? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been doing that. Yeah. yeah. I've just published my third book. Have you? What is it? Well, it's my small dreams of a seahorse, my second poetry collection. So technically I've written more books than both of you combined now. <laughs> <laughs> no, you haven't. You haven't written more books because John's written at least one. Yeah. And I've written two and you've written three, you say. So you can't say you've written more than both oh, of us combined. Oh, as many. <laughs> so first A they're not really proper books and B maybe you should write one about arithmetic next <laughs> so while we are talking about our own podcast Nick has sent in a question since your first people keep saying season I guess I'm just going to have to let that go that happens now doesn't it their season's not series that's gone we've lost that since season one, I've been using the How Fucked Is It model to help my students write literature reviews. <laughs> Have you any other questioning models that would be useful for younger academics? That's good to know, isn't it? That's really great. I mean, one of the ones that we use at the Forward Institute is the Willful Blindness model, which is basically trying to dig into the things that everyone knows are there, but no one wants to talk about. So it's usually about finding the point of maximum discomfort for an organisation. I think you could apply that perhaps to literary reviews. So what's the one thing that everyone perhaps subliminally thinks about this piece of literary work that no one's prepared to actually articulate and talk about? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a bit harsh for literary reviews. Like you say, how fucked is this book? (laughs) (laughs) Why is it fucked? How could it have been unfucked? How would you rewrite it? (laughs) (laughs) I think it's tough. I mean, I don't know whether it works with literary reviews, but a technique that Ed and I use a lot is the questioning of assumptions. So you make a list of all the things that people take to be self-evidently true in any industry or scientific discipline, and you get 
to the point where you agree with those. You go, yeah, this is pretty much the rules of the game. And you ask the people who are doing it, is this the stuff you believe to be self-evidently true? Otherwise, you couldn't do your job or whatever. And they go, yeah, that's that's it. And then you just start going down them and saying, which ones aren't true or won't be? And then what questions does that raise? And suddenly you get to find yourself in a very interesting place. In fact, one of my clients used that technique and came up with, as a result of that, the question, which is, you know, how are we going to become a regenerative business? And after this podcast, I'm having lunch with their newly hired head of regenerative business to help her answer that question. That came from just questioning a bunch of assumptions, which was one of the assumptions was that the businesses had to be degenerative, that by the very nature of doing business, that somehow um, we had to take from the planet. And we started questioning that and pulling it. And now we've got a plan to be a regenerative business 10 years from now. So in terms of critical thinking, there's one question I had off the back of that is I think school is a place where young people get taught to challenge and question. Well, I mean, let, let's pull that assumption straight away. Well, we have discussed that in the education podcast. Or they certainly should. And the lucky ones do. Still disagree? Uh, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> to what extent does it become a problem that we don't continue that thinking into adult life and how much of as you say when you take this thinking to businesses and say challenge assumptions how much in the populace is it a problem that we accept the status quo and i'm thinking of the state we've got to at the moment where teachers health workers postal workers these people are all on strike and we involve ourselves in long conversations about whether these people can be paid properly because there seems to be a base acceptance of where we are as a society at the moment and perhaps not enough people questioning whether an entirely new way is possible. I totally agree and I think it's, it's hard to question the water when you're a fish basically and we've all grown up with a set of assumptions around us you know a two-party system that apparently we live in a democracy and we champion that without actually questioning well, it's a pretty crappy democracy if you look at how it's actually working. The idea that there are some people that should be rewarded very richly and other people don't. This, this whole system in which you grow up colours the way you think. The very language you speak colours the way you think as well. It's almost impossible to get away from your own rivers of thinking and your own set of assumptions. And one of the things I often say is you want to find the nearest prejudiced person, go and look in the mirror. Because just the year you were born, the technology that was around when you were growing up, the language you speak, what your parents did, whether you're born male or female, all that, all that stuff immediately puts you into a particular set of assumptions that, that are clearly can't be true because there are different people who live different lives. And you know, even had this argument with my brother at the weekend, when we, you know, there's three of us brothers, and one of us said, well, you know, we had the same upbringing. And I was like, no, we didn't. <laughs> clearly we didn't. <laughs> but for him, it was like he was kind of arguing against some of the other brothers' decisions and going like, yeah, yeah because he's, he, he had the same upbringing as me, so he should have made all the same decisions. Well, he didn't because he was born at a different time. So we're, we're all victims of it. And part of the job of a good schooling system should be like, how do you question those assumptions? How do you step out of that to see what the bigger picture is? And that's what Ed and I do all the time. And for me, I think it's really good that most people don't question these assumptions because if they did, I wouldn't have a job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny, isn't it? Because I mean, literally, Claire Faye came back from Rainbows last night and she'd just done her Rainbows promise, which is, I promise that I will do my best to think about my beliefs, to be kind and helpful. And it's really simple to be making at five, to think about your beliefs. And I reminded her this morning after last night's shenanigans with the cup on the floor, to be kind and helpful. And she shot back immediately. She goes, that's only at Rainbows, Daddy. <laughs> now make me breakfast <laughs> in my most classic yeah home is a dictatorship yeah <laughs> so relating to that topic of questioning there, there is a there is a movement now where people do question 
And then perhaps question too far. So Obib Jowie says, a friend of mine has recently fallen into various rabbit holes from climate change is a hoax via Corona vaccines are dangerous to now Ukraine actually might be a Nazi state. Is there anything I can do? It's been going on for quite some time. I'm guessing the last eight years or so. So perhaps a question on how do you question and discuss those who feel that questioning actually means that nothing is sacred and you don't take anything as a fact. You could argue that all we've just said means, well, let's have a look at climate change and let's have a look at some of the things we take as true and perhaps question whether they are. I think that comes back to the point that Mark's making about really good critical thinking. It is tough because conspiracies sprout up everywhere. It's a bit like we were talking about last week about politics. It's like a plague on both or all your houses. And you can start to see conspiracy everywhere, but you have to sort of dig into the best reliable sources of information, I guess, and then also triangulate your perspectives, but also be able to suss out the stuff which is on shaky ground. But to answer the actual question is what can you do about his, his friend? And I think you have to understand that for a lot of people who believe outlandish conspiracy theories, this is not about facts and never will be. It's about emotion and it's about actually control. The, the modern world takes a huge amount of control away from you. And particularly if you are, don't feel you have much agency on your world, then suddenly a belief where I know, but you don't is very powerful. It is kind of like, oh, I've got the truth and you haven't. So you're kind of in a way you're taking about some kind of emotional control over what you think might be quite a chaotic or uncontrollable life. And that's the emotion you've got to talk to is like, if you can get people to feel like they have more agency. And so conspiracy theories are, are, are really a function of the economic system we're in, because if you can concentrate power in a very few people and in when you create wealth, it goes to those very few people and it doesn't filter down, it takes power away from people. And therefore they start to believe things that give them some sense of power, which is like, I know more than you do and I know how to crack this. It's far scarier to acknowledge that no one's really in control. Well, some people are kind of in control, but it's not a conspiracy theory. It's because they've got shit tons more money and they haven't accounted for the damage they're doing to the planet. Far better to say, well, perhaps that emotional need that you feel to take back control, to use a famous marketing slogan, is perhaps by getting into climate activism, by joining Extinction Rebellion, you know, like find the emotional thing that's driving that desire. I mean, we all do it. Like if you're in a relationship that's failing, for instance, you might convince yourself that it's not because that's easier than facing the truth. So there's always, we all do these things where we believe things that patently aren't true to people looking at us and they're looking at us going, they're doing that because it's emotionally convenient for them. And I think it's the same as conspiracy theories. That relationship stuff, you haven't had an email in from a listener called Lucy Bowman. That felt very, very on the nose. We decided to take that one out, didn't we, Ed? I think Lucy strategically ignores us. <laughs> so here's a question we've had in that it's come in as a tweet I feel like it's a question that is being screamed up and down the country by people. Uh, it's mad for travel says, how can we stop the government allowing water companies to dump sewage in rivers and how can we get them to clean up their act so they never do it even when it rains a lot? I feel like a lot of people are watching the news and just screaming this question repeatedly. How is this happening? Well, they've been totally let off the hook. They've been given a, a free reign. I mean, I saw Therese Coffey in Parliament this week sort of saying bathing water quality is improved under this administration. And that is simply a barefaced lie because we know the incidences of pollution have gone skyrocketing up. The companies have to be held to account. The trouble is, instead of reinvesting in the infrastructure and to repairing the pipes and dealing with those storm 
flows, which are supposedly there to cover the very rare occurrences where you get extreme precipitation and rain bomb type of impacts, which then cause the flooding, which allows the raw sewage to go into our waterways and onto our beaches. Those are now being used as an excuse for the diversion of infrastructure investment to shareholder dividends and payments. So to be honest, it's been a form of sort of naked profiteering because those companies aren't publicly owned. They are privately owned and they're often internationally owned by large businesses and private equity firms, which have no interest in whether your beach is covered in poo. All they're talking about is their shareholder value. So there has to be a greater accountability and that probably has to come through some pretty blunt legislative obligations. Mm, Systemically, what you have here is privately owned enterprise, which seems to be more efficient, which doesn't account for the damage it's doing to the environment. So you get climate change, which causes more extreme flooding. So they're all linked together. So suddenly the very operation of how those companies work is part of the systemic problem as to why we're getting more and more flooding events because the weather is changing because of climate change. So again, this comes back to the systemic piece, which is, you know, we've got to start, as Kate Brake was to say, accounting for the damage we're doing and factoring that into the way we do business. There is a movement towards doing that slowly, but it's going to take a generation or two. So if you look at, for instance, carbon emissions, now you have to report on your carbon emissions. Legislatively, quite soon, you're going to have to take some kind of legal responsibility for reducing them and removing them because everybody's making these net zero targets and there is a kind of a legal definition of net zero that people are going to get held to account to. At some point, that's going to move towards, oh, actually, as a business, I've got to factor in cleaning up the carbon into the way I do work. And that should be the case with water and air pollution as well. And I think that's... And soil. And soil, but it's going to take one or two generations for us to have that legislative infrastructure in place. Or we'll go to hell in the handcart. I'm in favour of the former, and uh, that's what I dedicate my life to. Very nice. And it moves us on to the question of net zero and climate. And time is running short, so probably our last question for this will be off the back of the state of Wyoming's decision to try and pass legislation to ban electric vehicles in the state. <laughs> Don't give away your feelings. Wait, let, let the listener decide for themselves whether they think Ed and Mark might be in favour of a ban on electric vehicles. It's fun for the listener to try and think, I wonder where they're going to come down on this one. Yeah, As a driver of an electric vehicle, this is something I get spoken to a lot about the flaws in the current electric vehicle model and the strain on batteries and things like that. So we have a question from Matt Johnson, who says, Matt Johnson? Matt Johnson, yes. From the the, the chief digital officer of NZN Global. He's retired from the music business. He's retired from the music business, yeah. What's in my head sometimes can't stay in my head, (laughs) but thoughts are my own. That's what he says. And I can tell you from Twitter, he's followed by the former Leeds United Liverpool footballer, Dominic Matteo. (laughs) A good egg. Is hydrogen the saviour of sustainability and renewables in the move to net zero across all domains of transport, households and industry? Firstly, we should just touch on the Wyoming thing because there is a whole bunch of really rabid right-wing saber rattling because these policies are never going to get through i'm in favor i'm in favor of it yeah. i think we, I, <laughs> yeah. I think we should definitely ban electric cars and oh, green taxes is definitely yeah. of them and the right to protest i think they're all getting in the way of progress the easier one and quieter and calmer yeah just stick with it as is and not say anything but wyoming were trying to argue it or the republican committee member who tried to put this forward was saying it's because we live in a state which is heavily dependent on coal and gas revenues 
And so therefore, if we move to EVs, we undermine our own economic viability, which is so batshit mental. But I don't think these things are done seriously because there's another one like from Missouri's House of Representatives where there was a ruling which said that women weren't allowed to bear their arms. They had to cover their arms when they were attending the House of Representatives. So in a state where you can literally have the right to bear arms, but you can't bear arms in your, your House of Representatives. These are simply provocative questions asked. They're just being idiots, I think, and putting stuff forward in order to play to that sort of rather rabid base. So hydrogen. Hydrogen probably does have a role, but not this blue hydrogen nonsense, which is being developed as a sort of offshoot from the fossil fuel business. But genuinely green hydrogen, which could be made through the use of excess renewable energy, you know, when the wind's blowing and the sun is shining, probably does have a role. Although my suspicion is it's being overstated. Hydrogen isn't a very interesting fuel. The thing is that creating it and the round trip proficiency by the time you've actually made it, you do use an awful lot of energy in, in making it. And so the question is, would that energy be better deployed elsewhere? So I think there will be certain industries where it will be very important. So in steelmaking, if you can start to replace a lot of the gas that's used in steelmaking with hydrogen, then yes, then you can start to have lower carbon steel. And I think that's hugely important because that's a massive emitting industry. Hydrogen cars had a little bit of a moment in the sun. I just think Hydrogen is actually a very corrosive gas. It's not something you want hanging around too long and it leaks out very easily. So I think there's a number of just basic chemical, physical problems with hydrogen in your kitchen and around your house and in the neighborhood. In big industrial practices, I can see it definitely having a role to play, but it's not going to be the safe. And like all these things, there isn't any single savior. We need it all. We need EVs, we need batteries to improve, we need solar, we need carbon capture, we need legislative change, we need behaviour change, we need the whole thing. We are in a war with our own future. And if we can the way we're going, we're going to lose to the future we've currently invented. So we have to go to war and create the one we want. Absolutely, I like that. We've just had a question come in on climate shaming, but I think time-wise we're going to have to save it for next time. Ooh, is that like they call a cliffhanger? Yes, well, I'll tell you what, here's one as well, because next time we will have an update from friend of the show, James Plunkett. And I think Ed, you want to talk about an essay he's just written. Always nice to keep in touch with people. I find it a relief, and I say this a lot, as a listener, to know and be reminded that the people we have on and talk about don't do the podcast and then stop working and trying to make the future better. They're doing it all the time. And as somebody who does dip in and out and do this podcast, and then as you say, I go and do a football podcast and then I wank on about my own life on tour. It's nice to be reminded, oh, brilliant people are always brilliant and they're always doing their best. So we will um, keep you updated with a new essay from James Plunkett. And in the search for our best listener, I tell you what, one listener has gone to extreme lengths yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's it's a series, I think, what this listener has created, a full presentation. What is it, 24 slides or something? He had to send it in four chunks in order to get it through because it's nearly 100 megabytes, I think. He introduced it very humbly. He said, I was inspired by, you know, your first series and in particular episode three, I think, on the future of work. And he said, so I went off and did my own research. The gentleman in question is a lifelong Tory voter and retired consultant. He said, don't blame me for that. But he's gone and done exactly what we were just discussing, the critical thinking, to go and question his own assumptions and his beliefs. And he's clearly spent a gargantuan amount of time on something which is actually 
I think, incredibly well researched and evidenced and documented. Unfortunately, the conclusion he goes, this is why we're in such a shit show. But he's genuinely done our, are we fucked, why are we fucked, and also led us to a point of how we might unfuck ourselves. But I agree with you, John. It's like, it's a series. It's an incredible piece of work. I was deeply touched and hugely impressed when I read it. Yeah, we're going to say who he is. Or we'll just <laughs> well, no, he, I think he wants to be anonymous. Oh, really? I don't think we should mention him Hang by on. name. Hang on, it says here, Mr. B. Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> he said that like J.R. Hartley, and it's really? the closest <laughs> I've come to ever feeling affection for Boris Johnson, picturing <laughs> yeah. this sort of lonely old man in his house. Do you have a copy of Brexit and Idiot's Guide? Uh, um, yes. You do. <laughs> an idiot's guide, an idiot's plan. So we'll come to that more in Series 4, Episode 10. Shall we record it straight away? That'll drive people insane on Twitter <laughs> if we say we've recorded it straight away. <laughs> Your involvement was not necessary. But it's come to that point where I, I remind you of the ways and means of getting in touch. But obviously that bar has been set. So send a question in, of course. Send an email. But if you've got time to go away and do critical thinking over a period of months and then send in a full report on what you've done, that would be great for the received as well. <laughs> this podcast is here to ask questions it should leave you asking questions but there are times of course when loose ends should be wrapped up and it's nice to be able to conclude something categorically and I can tell you at the end of this week's show that Enya is 61 years old and still jogging I bet she's still jogging absolutely but not with me not with you not yet but if you're listening Enya get in touch back to our point do the exercise you like and jogging with Enya is not an exercise I would like nothing against Enya but I hate jogging that sounds like a euphemism, Mark. I think we should end it there. <laughs> what, jogging with Enya? <laughs> I'll go for a run with Enya. I feel bad for her now. She is listening. Fuck you, guys. <laughs> I'll t- I tell you what, that accent will have really helped her warm to you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Slip that in the end. I think people have turned off now anyway. So I think we'll pretty yeah. much say what we like at the end of the podcast, right? Anyone want to say something horrific? Get us cancelled? <laughs> Here's how you can reach us. You can reach us by email at hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. That's hello at john, J-O-N, and the futurenauts, all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letter swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. Thank you for your time, gentlemen. Always a pleasure. 